the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, June 2nd, 2022, the 503rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I want to start, as always, by mentioning the great American patriot, Mike Lindell, and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code REASONABLE. And find discounts of up to 60% off items all across the store. There's a bunch of buy one, get one free deals right now. And you'll get Mike Lindell's book as a free gift when you order. MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE. A thank you to all of you who have continued to sign up for paid subscriptions on the Substack. As I said yesterday, I'll be going exclusively to Substack for on-time episodes. And I will release it with a one or two day delay on other platforms so that it's accessible to people for the time being. And I'll see how that goes and maybe I'll switch it. But a $5 a month subscription breaks down to 25 cents per episode, give or take. There's usually 20 some odd episodes a month plus the writing and you'll have immediate access to that always. Plus you will be helping to support independent media And if you like and respect what I do, the way to keep what I do going is to support the show in whatever way you are able. There's also a whole lot of people waking up right now. So sharing the show is one of the most effective things you can do. And I always tell people, if you're going to start on my show, if you are someone who has been addicted to the central narrative for your whole life and you are just beginning to break out of that, start back a few months, three months, six months, a year, and you will find me talking about issues and information that is just beginning to now come out in the mainstream media. You can see that it was all available back then. And that is a very powerful red pill for people addicted to the central narrative. They think that they are on the edge of information, on the front edge. They are getting information, not just from CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or the New York Times. They go deeper. (laughs) They see other sources because the Apple News app and other news aggregators pop up a bunch of different sources and they give the illusion of having received diverse viewpoints on factual information It makes them feel like they have considered 
a lot of different perspectives when really the only perspective they're considering is the one that Apple has curated specifically for them. And that's the time machine effect I talk about. They might just be hearing about China and Taiwan, for instance, for the first time right now, or the unbelievable number and range of vaccine adverse events that has been hidden from them the entire time. They might just be starting to figure that out. To hear that a year ago, they could have known the things they know now is a major red pill. If you actually care about guiding your life and making smart, responsible decisions, it is always better to know information as early as possible. And we've all experienced this. How many times in your life have you thought, oh man, if I just knew in high school what I knew now, my life would have taken a totally different turn, right? Or college or in a relationship or whatever. It's always what you didn't know, but could have or should have that'll drive you crazy. And I imagine there's a lot of people in the world thinking about just that right now. So recommend the show to people who are beginning to wake up. Tell them to start back a little further. Whatever issue it is, that they're realizing they've been lied to, start them back when we started talking about that issue. Because nobody who is just jumping off the central narrative train is going to jump onto my train and just keep up with it. Because the entire episode would be me saying things that they don't think I have any business saying. They don't understand that this knowledge, this information, my viewpoint has built up over time based on evolving information as we've seen over the last couple of years. They are trapped in an informational past and you can't just put them right back to the present day. You got to give them a little runway. You got to give them that hill at the beginning of the roller coaster that just cranks slowly up, takes forever to get up that first hill. And then you're like, whoa, you can't just start them out at whoa. But you can start them out here. Maybe this would be a good red pill. This is Ted Cruz today in a Senate hearing saying one of the things you are never supposed to say. I think my colleagues on the Democratic side of the aisle try very hard to erase the history of the Klan, that it was formed by elected Democrats that its leadership was almost entirely elected Democrats, that the authors of the Jim Crow laws were without exception elected Democrats. Now, you are not allowed to mention any of that to Joe Biden voters. They don't even think it makes sense. They think somehow that's part of a conspiracy theory and must be a lie. Democrats couldn't have started the Klan. Democrats couldn't have been responsible for Jim Crow. But they were. Democrats were also the party of the Confederacy. We pretend none of that is true now. Because, we're told, Democrats passed the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s. And at that point, there was a switcheroo. They became us and we became them. Now, Democrats filibustered the Civil Rights Act and Lyndon B. Johnson, a Democrat, was the president who signed the Civil Rights Act. So now Democrats get full credit for that, 
even though they filibustered it. In fact, Senator Robert Byrd was one of the main people responsible for that filibuster. That filibuster lasted 60 days. Democrats did that. Robert Byrd was famously a Klan leader. He was a Grand Klegel, an exalted Cyclops in the Klan. And then he went on to be Joe Biden's mentor in politics for decades. Joe Biden eulogized Robert Byrd at his funeral. But we are told, like the Democrat Party, Robert Byrd also did a switcheroo. As soon as the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, Robert Byrd was no longer a white supremacist or segregationist because he realized that the country doesn't like that anymore. People aren't going to put up with this sort of thing. Therefore, he and the Democrats decided to rebrand as their opposite and rebrand their opposite as them. Immediately, racism forever was done by people in the South who were Republican. Now, the entire history of white supremacy in America has been ideologically aligned with the Democrat Party, not the Republican Party, the Democrat Party. And because the Confederacy was based in the South and now because the South is primarily red, that means it was actually Republicans who have the racist past in America. And that's as far as the thought process will go. South equals red. South equals racist. Therefore, red equals racist. And that's the entire thing. And logically, that makes sense. Turns out the premises are false, but logically it makes sense. But here's the thing. The Democrat Party ideologically is prone to racism. It is prone to the KKK. It's prone to Jim Crow laws. They divide people. It is a collectivist ideology. And division is the endpoint of all collectivist ideologies. That is what they thrive on. They advance by saying this group has it better than that group. Therefore, this group is an oppressor of that group. Therefore, we will achieve power by attacking the oppressor and saying that we are standing up for the victims, except they don't do that. And what we can see in reality is decade upon decade upon decade in the major cities around the country, the major urban centers, minority neighborhoods are being destroyed. Rampant crime, rampant guns, terrible educational structures, where now it's been made even worse by flooding illegal immigrants into the classroom. No offense to illegal immigrants, but if a teacher can teach 30 people and that's the max, that's the max that can comfortably fit in the classroom. That's the max that the teacher can adequately deal with. And then you put 40 or 50 or 60 kids in that classroom. The educational value is going to deteriorate. It's not racist to say that it's obvious. And it's a massive problem. And it's one that the Democrat Communist Party does not pay any mind to because they don't care about whether or not your kids get educated. When you achieve power on the back of a defined underclass, and that is your only ability to hold on to power, 
you not only label new underclasses nonstop, you also need to keep the underclass an underclass so you can continue to achieve power off of them. And you should notice that Democrat politicians and the media never talk about the Democrat constituency growing through their ideas by appealing to Americans with their policies. They grow their constituency by deciding on new victim classes to say they're protecting. And again, as I was saying yesterday, that is a terrible policy and a terrible idea that will implode on itself. And of course, that's what we're seeing in politics and culture right now. So good for Ted Cruz speaking up and saying that and putting that in the record, putting that in the public conversation, because it very much needs to be. And yeah, I know I don't really trust Ted Cruz either. Doesn't matter. Still good. He said this. Now, there are seven states with primaries today, California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico and South Dakota. And if I have time, I'm going to get into a little bit of that later, but it's going to be really interesting to see these results, especially in the recall election for San Francisco's district attorney, Chesa Boudin. He is doing a spectacular job of destroying San Francisco and making it one of the least safe cities in the country. And the citizens of Northern California got to work and amassed the number of signatures necessary to put him up for recall. Now, I expect this to go the same way as Gavin Newsom's recall went. They will flood a huge number of fake votes into the system and probably give Chesa Boudin a resounding win, like 55%, 45%, somewhere around there, maybe up to 60 because I am guessing that they want to run with the narrative. Yes, people are frustrated, but they're frustrated about a lot of things. Their frustrations are not entirely Boudin's fault. And voters know that. Voters see what's happening now as a speed bump on the road to progress. So call me cynical, but I expect overwhelming fraud throughout California. And I would be really surprised if Boudin was actually thrown out of office. But the media is writing a lot of articles flirting with that idea. So who knows? So Elon Musk's potential purchase of Twitter continues to advance forward. And Elon Musk is basically out there making news every single day. But I can't make this the Elon Musk newsworthy tweets podcast. So I come to it when I can And there were some interesting developments yesterday. Musk's attorneys at Skadden Arps addressed a letter to Vidya Gotti, the chief legal officer at Twitter, and filed it with the SEC. This is that letter. We are in receipt of correspondence sent on Twitter's behalf dated June 1st, 2022, Responding to Mr. Musk's request for the data and information described in my letters dated May 25th, 2022 and May 31st, 2022. Mr. Musk does not agree with the characterizations in Twitter's June 1st letter. Twitter has, in fact, refused to provide the information that Mr. Musk has repeatedly requested since May 9th, 2022 to facilitate his evaluation of 
of spam and fake accounts on the company's platform. Twitter's latest offer to simply provide additional details regarding the company's own testing methodologies, whether through written materials or verbal explanations, is tantamount to refusing Mr. Musk's data requests. Twitter's effort to characterize it otherwise is merely an attempt to obfuscate and confuse the issue. Mr. Musk has made it clear that he does not believe the company's lax testing methodologies are adequate, so he must conduct his own analysis. The data he has requested is necessary to do so. As noted, under various terms of the merger agreement, Twitter is required to provide data and information that Mr. Musk requests in connection with the consummation of the transaction. Twitter's obligations to provide Mr. Musk with information is not, as the company's June 1st letter suggests, limited to a very specific purpose. And this is in quotes, a very specific purpose facilitating the closing of the transaction. So Twitter is basically doing two things. They are understanding his request and giving him information that they think is somehow responsive, even though it isn't. And they are also trying to say that his request is outside the bounds of the merger agreement. So they're simultaneously saying, we respect your request. Here's what we can provide you. And also, you have no right to be making that request. And both of those seem pretty obviously like losing arguments. To the contrary, Mr. Musk is entitled to seek and Twitter is obligated to provide information and data for inter alia, any reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transaction. And inter alia essentially means among other things. Twitter must also provide reasonable cooperation in connection with Mr. Musk's efforts to secure the debt financing necessary to consummate the transaction, including by providing information, quote, reasonably requested by Mr. Musk. Mr. Musk's request for user data not only satisfies both criteria, but also meets even Twitter's narrowed interpretation of the merger agreement, as this information is necessary to facilitate the closing of the transaction. And that response basically says, your response is nonsense, and we understand that. But even if your response was legitimate and valid and important, you still wouldn't have answered the question. Because the transaction cannot be closed without knowing this critical information. It actually does matter a great deal whether the number of bots is 5% or it's 20% or it's more than 20%. And at some level of the bot population, at some point, you would have to look at Twitter as a mirage. Everything is propped up by an illusion of popularity an illusion of popular support. If it was 1% bots or 2% bots or maybe even 5% bots, this wouldn't be a question. But it's 20 plus percent bots and Twitter doesn't want to talk about what the actual number is, which should pretty much tell any attentive observer that the Twitter thing may well be an illusion. And I'll get back to that, but let's keep going with the letter. 
As Twitter's prospective owner, Mr. Musk is clearly entitled to the requested data to enable him to prepare for transitioning Twitter's business to his ownership and to facilitate his transaction financing. To do both, he must have a complete and accurate understanding of the very core of Twitter's business model, its active user base. In any event, Mr. Musk is not required to explain his rationale for requesting the data, nor submit to the new conditions the company has attempted to impose on his contractual right to the requested data. At this point, Mr. Musk believes Twitter is transparently refusing to comply with its obligations under the merger agreement, which is causing further suspicion that the company is withholding the requested data due to concern for what Mr. Musk's own analysis of that data will uncover. So essentially, Twitter is making spurious arguments in court to draw this process out and to continue to hide what really is behind Twitter. Do they have the number of users they say? And then eventually, those conversations have to cross over into why are there so many bots? What are these bots being used for? Who is running these bots and paying for them? And eventually you just get to the point where you see Twitter as a platform that simply advertises a certain set of beliefs around really everything. Consumer behavior as much as politics, the stock market as much as politics. Twitter can influence public opinion on anything. And they do that with a certain set of paid advertisers, essentially people who are doing the influencing, just disseminating commercials all day long as if they were their own personal ideas. And the public at large reads that as their own personal ideas. And then they see how much support the idea has because of likes and retweets. And they see what's trending. And those bot armies with the influencers, the members of the media, Blue and on, they can knock down any threatening counter narrative. And then the platform ultimately bans anybody who refuses to buy the product that they're advertising, essentially. And I think another interesting issue we might stumble upon in the near future that we haven't really discussed yet is that if these influencers are getting paid to disseminate ideas as if they're their own ideas, then why aren't those ideas and those posts subject to the same paid sponsorship regulations that a fashion influencer or celebrity might be governed by on other platforms? Is it different because one of them is selling a swimsuit or a handbag or a pair of boots and the other is selling the idea that the vaccines are very safe and effective on behalf of Pfizer and Moderna or promoting the use of mail-in ballots and drop boxes like Jennifer Aniston on behalf of Facebook and various NGOs and the Democrat Communist Party or advertising that CNN and MSNBC are really going to find that silver bullet that finally gets Trump this time in their primetime coverage this week? Honestly, what is the difference? They're being paid to sell a product or idea to the general public. And adoption of that is being promoted by artificial intelligence and non-existent Twitter users.
Let's get back to the letter. If Twitter is confident in its publicized spam estimates, Mr. Musk does not understand the company's reluctance to allow Mr. Musk to independently evaluate those estimates. As noted in our previous correspondence, Mr. Musk will, of course, comply with the restrictions provided under Section 6.4, including by ensuring that anyone reviewing the data is bound by a non-disclosure agreement. And Mr. Musk will not retain or otherwise use any competitively sensitive information if the transaction is not consummated. So basically, Elon Musk's lawyers are preempting the argument that they might next get from Twitter that it's going to expose Twitter to some sort of danger or liability or data breach if they share this very sensitive data with Elon Musk. And of course, they're making the point that Twitter has already filed the information they have with government regulators. They should at least be able to substantiate that information. That's kind of part of their responsibility when making the filing in the first place. But that's almost definitely not what happened. They talked about how high a number they could give the public so that the public might believe it and also not get mad. And I guess they settled on 5%. But hey, good luck, Twitter. 5% is already really bad. Especially because the 5% is not some random 5%. It's not like you can just grab 20 users and they all have different opinions and one of them happens to be a bot with the bot's opinions. That 5% exists to guide narratives and change public opinion. It can all be directed. And I'm not saying it can all be directed as one in one direction, though I'm not saying that's impossible either. The point is that the effect they're trying to achieve can actually be achieved with very few bots. I mean, I personally have never had more than like a mid-size social media presence. I think I had like 15,000 or so when I got kicked off Instagram. And I'm also a bit predisposed to not caring what strangers think about my character, which they don't know at all. But what about people with 75 followers or 150 followers, like friends and family? And those people actually do care what their followers think of them because their followers know them. How much does it take to demoralize someone with 150 followers? Some posts they make, all of a sudden, it gets attacked by... 50 bots, and they think it's the end of the world. This is how the demoralization machine works. And it's important to not only think of this problem in the aggregate, but think about how it works in specific cases. And then you have to understand that the bot armies actually can be directed in one direction with numbers high enough to boost whatever narrative the platform wants to boost or whatever product or whatever idea. So 5% is a big deal, but there's no reason to believe it's 5%. If it was actually 5%, Twitter shouldn't have any problem relaying their methodology and the data behind it. Based on Twitter's behavior to date and the company's latest correspondence in particular, Mr. Musk believes the company is actively resisting and thwarting his information rights and the company's corresponding obligations under the merger agreement. This is a clear material breach of Twitter's obligations under the merger agreement, and Mr. Musk reserves all rights resulting therefrom, including his right not to consummate the transaction and his right to terminate the merger agreement. So we will see how Twitter responds, but this issue is not going away. And yesterday, the attorney general of 
Texas, Ken Paxton, put out this press release. A.G. Paxton launches investigation against Twitter for potentially deceiving Texas consumers and Texas businesses over fake bot accounts. Today, Attorney General Ken Paxton launched an investigation against Twitter for potentially false reporting over its fake bot accounts in violation of the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. On Twitter, bots are automated non-human accounts that can do virtually the same things as real people send tweets, follow other users, and like and retweet others' posts. Spam accounts like these inflate followers and reach and often push deceptive and annoying activity. Bot accounts can not only reduce the quality of users' experience on the platform, but may also inflate the value of the company and the cost of doing business with it, thus directly harming Texas consumers and businesses. Twitter has received intense scrutiny in recent weeks over claiming in its financial regulatory findings that fewer than 5% of all users are bots, when they may in fact comprise as much as 20% or more. The difference could dramatically affect the cost to Texas consumers and businesses who transact with Twitter. To address this concern, Attorney General Paxton issued a civil investigative demand to investigate whether Twitter's reporting on real versus fake users is, quote, false, misleading or deceptive under the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. The CID requires Twitter to turn over documents related to how it calculates and manages its user data and how these numbers relate to Twitter's advertising businesses. Twitter has until June 27th to respond to Attorney General Paxton's demand. Texans rely on Twitter's public statements that nearly all its users are real people. It matters not only for regular Twitter users, but also Texas businesses and advertisers who use Twitter for their livelihoods, said Attorney General Paxton. If Twitter is misrepresenting how many accounts are fake to drive up their revenue, I have a duty to protect Texans. And that is available on the TexasAttorneyGeneral.gov website and the copy of the civil investigative demand filed by Attorney General Paxton is available and linked at the bottom of that press release. So those are two huge pieces of news in this whole Twitter bot issue, and they will definitely affect the sale of Twitter, and they definitely affect other litigation that Twitter has open and ongoing right now. But even leaving that aside, this is now Elon Musk, who's supposed to be purchasing Twitter, and the Attorney General of Texas, both demanding essentially the same information of Twitter, and this is information Twitter absolutely does not want to give. There's some interesting commentary on all this in The Federalist. This is from this morning, written by Jordan Boyd. Who is paying for Twitter bots to spam everyone with the same stupid pro-Biden spin? That is a great question. President Joe Biden is failing miserably, but you wouldn't know it from the propaganda flooding your Twitter feed from dozens of seemingly normal Democrat accounts on Monday afternoon. Within mere seconds of each other, dozens of accounts tweeted appreciation for Biden and Democrats in Congress for passing a $1.9 trillion spending bill that has definitively made already record high inflation in the United States worse. 8.6 plus million jobs under at Joe Biden didn't happen by accident. The American Rescue Plan got Americans vaccinated, helped schools stay open and kept businesses humming. Not a single Republican in Congress voted for it. 
the accounts tweeted nearly simultaneously. And the article displays some of those tweets it's referencing. It's the same exact tweet posted in seven instances from seven different accounts. That's what they show in the article. And some of these accounts have just normal names like Pat Elliott, MBA, normal looking pictures of normal looking people. And if you don't dig into the account, you would just simply assume, oh, that's a real person saying that. But then you see the same word for word response over and over again. How's that possible? The barrage of pro-Biden lies came on Monday afternoon, shortly after the Democrat National Committee's main Twitter account thanked Biden for making the American job market, quote, the strongest it's been since just after World War II, end quote, something Biden claimed in a speech this weekend. This, of course, is a lie with no mention of rampant inflation and record high gas prices that far outpace any job or wage growth. But that didn't stop the avalanche of copy and paste spin copied from a DNC tweet on Saturday from relentlessly plaguing anyone who searched American Rescue Plan on Twitter. It's unclear who jumpstarted or funded the unsolicited Democrat messaging on Twitter feeds across the world. Even though the text was copied directly from the Democrat National Committee Twitter, the DNC did not respond to the Federalist's request for comment. What is clear, however, is that despite Twitter's efforts to conceal its bot problem, users aren't convinced that inauthentic accounts make up fewer than 5% of the company's users, as the big tech platform likes to claim. Mega billionaire Elon Musk even threatened to derail his $44 billion offer unless Twitter shows definitive proof of less than 5% spam accounts. My offer was based on Twitter's SEC filings being accurate. Yesterday, Twitter's CEO publicly refused to show proof of less than 5%. This deal cannot move forward until he does. And that was from May 17th. That was one day after Musk tweeted a poop emoji at Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal, who claimed that Twitter has a system designed to curb online bots. More recently, on Monday, Musk requested data from Twitter and pledged to conduct his own analysis on the number of spam accounts on the platform since the Silicon Valley giant adheres to what the Tesla CEO has labeled lax testing methodologies. Musk claimed that Twitter's stalling on bots is a clear material breach of Twitter's obligations under the merger agreement and gives him the authority to back out of the deal. And the article then goes into the announcement of the investigation by Attorney General Ken Paxton yesterday. But this is a nice little snapshot of what these bots are able to do in terms of affecting the narrative. These are accounts made to look like real people, made to seem like real people who are just copying and pasting a tweet from the Democratic National Committee and then making this a trending idea on Twitter. And it's good that people are noticing this because this has been going on for a long time. It's not always so obvious as a bunch of accounts posting the exact same thing, but it often is because this happens a lot. And it gives the illusion that there are actually a lot of people out there in the country, our neighbors, the people we work with, the people in our community who believe this stuff, who really, really believe this stuff and are willing to go out and support it and voice it. But again, that's an illusion. And I've talked about this a bunch of times on the show, but think of how the global communist order manipulates public perception. This is a very, very tangible way 
to see that happening. But I've suggested before that there is no more effective way than to manipulate the public's perception of itself than to steal elections. Because if people believe in the vote, if they believe in the integrity of our elections, then they accept the outcome of the elections and they say, hey, well, you know, I really think that this was the right way to go, but I understand that my neighbors and these people, these other people that maybe I don't know, that they have a different opinion about things. And you know what? They have the numbers, whatever it was, people swayed them to their viewpoint. They voted for this side or that side. And we're just going to have to go with that because that's how society works. And this is especially effective as a narrative device with ballot measures, because ballot measures say, hey, what do you think about this exact issue? And so when you see that the majority of your county or city or state has voted overwhelmingly for something that you think is insane, you think, oh, wow, really, there's so many other people that disagree with this thing. It seems so obvious to me. But you throw your hands up and you say, man, I guess that this environment I exist in isn't quite what I thought it was. The people don't agree with me, apparently. And you get frustrated and you probably think, oh, man, I better not keep expressing this viewpoint. People seem to be really upset about this. Maybe I got this one wrong. And rampant election fraud has the power to create an illusion about who the people around you actually are and what they actually think. Californians recalled Gavin Newsom last year and Gavin achieved himself a 60 plus percent win in that recall. Leading Californians who wanted to recall Gavin Newsom to believe, wow, two thirds of the state is still lined up against us. And the media goes off with that and says, Gavin Newsom has a new mandate. He was put to the test. We let the voters decide. The voters of California agreed that Gavin Newsom had been a strong leader throughout the coronavirus pandemic. And now we are going to trust him to further communize California. And so that election fraud is not only what determines the outcome of the election, it's also direct feedback, we believe, if we believe in election integrity, of what everybody else thinks. And most people want to be in line with the group's dominant beliefs and the group's dominant behaviors because there is safety in those numbers. We have been conditioned to look after our best interests while remaining part of the herd and not steering too far off course. And now with Twitter and with the bots, and by the way, these exist on other platforms too. It's not just Twitter. That same process can be replicated basically an infinite number of times on Twitter about any issue they choose. And when you continue to hammer on the same things and continue to push all of those narratives into the mainstream, over time, people really do become convinced that the position they hold, no matter how right they think it is, just simply must be wrong because everyone else believes the opposite. And when you first start noticing this, it feels very isolating. But then they have reinforcement systems. You speak out against it, you'll get attacked on Twitter. 
you'll also be shown content that reinforces their narrative because the algorithm controls what you're seeing. There's actually a reason why social media advertising is so effective. And it's not just because they get the most eyes on something. It's because it's connecting with people on a number of different levels. Some of them very primal, like our need for approval by our peers or people we respect. But you steer off course and you get the experts think you're stupid. The media, the blue anons in the media, they'll make fun of you. You're crazy. You're an outcast. You're what's holding our society back from the utopia we have envisioned. The celebrities and the athletes and the musicians, they're all involved in changing your perspective. And the dissenting voices get drowned out, dismissed, and banned. And so I was thinking about all of this while I was on Truth Social yesterday, and a post from Marco Rubio popped up. And I clicked over to Rubio's account because I just wanted to see how he was doing on Truth Social. I mean, Rubio's one of those characters that like tries to stay in the middle. He's basically accepting of Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters as kind of a necessary evil. That's how it seems when Marco Rubio is talking about anything of relevance. He's basically aligned with the global communist priorities on virtually every issue. And it turns out that Marco Rubio has about 16,000 followers on Truth Social. Now, to be fair, the platform just started a couple of months ago. Rubio is active on it, but I'm sure it's not his main social media. And this is not a natural Marco Rubio environment. But Donald Trump has 3.2 million followers, so we know there's at least that many users on the platform, assuming Truth Social's not overwhelmed by bots, and everyone involved with Truth Social has made it very clear that keeping bots off the platform is a major priority for them. So we can safely assume if there's a bot problem, it's nowhere near on the level of Twitter. Marco Rubio's got 16,000 people on Truth Social that want to follow him. 16,000. That's not very many for a sitting U.S. senator who is a national figure who has attempted to run for president before. I mean, I've got 3,500 followers on Truth Social. That means I'm 20% as popular as Marco Rubio on that platform. Why don't more members of Truth Social want to follow Marco Rubio? For comparison, Marjorie Taylor Greene has 180,000 plus followers. Her following's 11 times the size of Rubio's. Rubio has 4.4 million followers on Twitter. And again, I understand Twitter is a much bigger platform, been around a lot longer. Of course, he's going to have higher numbers on there. But how many of them are bots? What is Marco Rubio's real popularity? And why is he so unpopular with the Republican base, literally the people who are going to decide Marco Rubio's future don't care about him at all. And he has not responded to that in any way. He is still as lukewarm a Trump supporter as he has always been, which is to say not a Trump supporter at all. But I guess we'll see if that improves for him. The key, though, is to realize that on Twitter and on Instagram and on YouTube as well, 
The bots are a real thing. They are used for specific reasons to change the public opinion about a product or an idea. And they're used across the board. They can inflate people's follower numbers in response to a person posting content that helps them out. There's a built-in reward system for people doing what the regime wants them to do. They make themselves useful idiots and they are rewarded for their performance. And all of it is part of the same propaganda and censorship regime that we see all across media and throughout American life. And consider this nightmare that Twitter and Meta and Google, YouTube and Instagram are attempting to avoid by ignoring this bot conversation, Twitter specifically trying to keep the data held back. What happens when all of these people actually have to wrestle with the real level of support their ideas have in the real world? That will be a meltdown of unbelievable proportions. And I think about all of this in relation to Hollywood, as I often do. There was a period in the mid 2010s once Instagram had kind of become pervasive throughout that culture where people's follower count and their engagement drove all sorts of opportunities for them in their particular industries. Actors and actresses were getting hired based on their follower number. Like if you had two people come in to audition, a lot of times the decisions made on who to hire for the movie or for the television show, those decisions were not made on who the best actor is or how much they fit the character's role, either physically or in their mannerisms or anything like that. The decisions were made based on follower count and the follower count could easily be inflated by bots and absolutely no one would know it. But once the idea that you could win or lose a job based on your follower count became widespread, people began competing for the most number of followers. And what gets you the most number of followers on Instagram? Sex, materialism, interacting with high profile accounts and repeating the slogans in public. And these are all things that the social media platforms can promote, not only with their algorithm, but also with those bot armies. And people began to change their behavior and change themselves, change their beliefs based on what would get the best response on social media so they could keep that follower count growing. They would choose specifically to remove certain content if they didn't think that content was being properly responded to by their following. And again, I used to work in celebrity management of social media accounts. These are real discussions that people were having. What is going to happen when all of these actresses and actors realize that they've been scammed by that system for the last decade? They said and did and supported all sorts of things they would never want to say or do or support on their own. They did it so they could increase their following, expecting that one day that would increase their viability within their industry that they really, really wanted to be successful in. And look where it got us. Virtually nowhere. 
people began realizing that hiring people for film and TV based on their social media followings was not translating into the performance of the movie or the TV show. It didn't work because their consumers actually care about quality and authenticity and not just who does the most advertising online. You want to see a meltdown in Hollywood. Wait till they realize that their followings aren't real and that they actually rejected all of the real and authentic people in their lives in favor of the opinion of strangers. But those strangers didn't even exist. Now, I want to hit a couple other things before I go. This is from the Daily Mail today. CDC backtracks. Agency drops advice for travelers to wear face masks to protect themselves against monkeypox after less than 24 hours after it is spotlighted by media. 31 confirmed cases in the U.S., including seven in New York and six in California. Yeah, that was the headline. Thanks, Daily Mail. The CDC has dropped its advice for travelers to wear face masks to protect themselves against monkeypox just 24 hours after it was reported by the media. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention deleted this bullet point from their alert on the tropical disease before 3 a.m. on Tuesday, screen captures show. A day before, the page read, wear a mask. Wearing a mask can help protect you from many diseases, including monkeypox. It was quietly added to the section six days ago after the threat level was raised to level two, which advises travelers to practice enhanced precautions. DailyMail.com has contacted the CDC for an explanation on the decision to take down the guidance. On Monday, Fox News reported the change on its website in an article published at 1.07 p.m. Eastern. Later in the day, both DailyMail.com and CNBC also reported the guidance. Monkeypox can only be spread by people showing symptoms of the virus and typically transmits through physical contact with infectious skin lesions. But in some cases, it can also be spread through breathing in droplets from infected people. And so we can stop with the article right there. You're obviously welcome to read the rest of it. Monkeypox passes from symptomatic people through physical contact with skin lesions. And the CDC recommended that people wear masks. Because sometimes it can pass through a droplet and a mask, you know, a mask might protect you from a droplet and masks don't protect you from a droplet. They don't protect you from an aerosolized virus, but people still believe they do. And so if you tell them that monkeypox could be spread that way, well, then mask up again. The CDC has already said that cloth masks don't work. You might remember a few months ago when they tried to convince everybody that you actually need N95 masks and that the government was going to go ahead and provide everybody one N95 mask. Now, N95 masks can't be worn multiple times and they don't protect against viruses if you have any problem with how you use the mask, including if you have a scruffy face or a beard if you're a man, because the mask has to seal your face. Masks don't work in preventing COVID, period. If masks work, why didn't they? Where is all the peer-reviewed literature about how masks can prevent the spread of viruses? That literature doesn't exist. 
It has never existed. It's been studied for 100 years. But the CDC, the world-renowned experts in disease control, said it would be a good idea for people to wear those same cloth masks to fend off monkeypox. And they know that people will listen to them even if they remove the guidance. Because the guidance in the first place is based on the premise of better safe than sorry. And if you are a child brain who doesn't want to think about anything, then you'll accept that. And you'll be like, yep, you know, they're talking about monkeypox. Going to wear the mask. Going to just put the mask on. Not sure it helps, but better safe than sorry. Masks are not better safe than sorry. Masks don't fit that. Okay. Better safe than sorry means something might help and it can't hurt. So we might as well. But masks don't fit that. Masks do hurt. Masks are bad physically. The evidence is overwhelming and they are bad emotionally. The evidence there too is overwhelming. They do absolutely nothing to prevent the spread of the virus, which means they don't help at all. So if your goal is better safe than sorry, don't wear the mask. The downside only comes from wearing the mask. The mask does not provide any benefit in protecting you against disease, but it does harm you. The way people should think of it is those masks have a lot of problems and I'm not really sure they help. So thank you for the offer for me to wear a mask, but better safe than sorry. I'm going to go ahead and not do that. But once again, we are in the false reality, the upside down bizarro world where people believe only false things. And even if their brain is operating in its logical capacity, everything that goes into it is garbage, which means everything that comes out of it is garbage, garbage in garbage out about every single subject. You have to start wondering what they're not prepared to wear a mask in response to. And you might notice, by the way, that face masks are absolutely as protective from gun violence as they are from COVID. It is a zero in both instances. I'm a bit surprised the communists have not started arguing that the wearing of face masks could actually prevent gun violence. There's a cheap and responsible solution. No. And hey, while we're at it, there are an estimated 3 billion plus cloth face masks in the ocean. And they're really essentially plastic face masks because they're like a plastic cloth. And they take 450 years to break down. But hey, commies, better safe than sorry, right? Right. And finally, the DHS has issued a new National Terrorism Advisory Bulletin. Here it is. Today, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro N. Mayorkas issued a National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin regarding the continued heightened threat environment across the United States. The entire United States is in a heightened threat environment vis-a-vis -vis terrorism. 
This is the sixth NTAS bulletin issued by the Department of Homeland Security since January 2021, and it replaces the current bulletin that was set to expire at 2 p.m. Eastern today. As recent acts of violence in communities across the country have so tragically demonstrated, the nation remains in a heightened threat environment, and we expect that environment will become more dynamic in the coming months, said Mayorkas. The Department of Homeland Security remains steadfast in our commitment to provide timely information and resources to the American public and our partners across every level of government, in law enforcement, and in the private sector. You got to remember, this is the most transparent administration in history, or so they like to describe themselves. This includes regular engagement with stakeholders. Oh, stakeholders. To maintain awareness about the threat environment, trainings and online resources to help communities stay safe, increased sharing of information with law enforcement partners, and millions of dollars in grant funding opportunities for communities and organizations to enhance security and advance prevention efforts. So however they would like to describe that, they're prepared to give money to organizations that will help them. In the coming months, DHS expects the threat environment to become more dynamic as several high-profile events could be exploited to justify acts of violence against a range of possible targets. These targets could include public gatherings, faith-based institutions, schools, racial, ethnic, and religious minorities, government facilities and personnel, U.S. critical infrastructure, the media, and perceived ideological opponents. That basically covers anyone who disagrees with them doing essentially anything. And that is among the many problems that we see as a result of redefining words and social media posts as real life violence. Again, this is the national terrorism advisory system. Terrorism. These targets could include public gatherings faith-based institutions, schools, racial, ethnic, and religious minorities, government facilities and personnel, U.S. critical infrastructure, the media, and perceived ideological opponents. Do they have direct evidence of threat toward any of these things? That's what they should be showing us. Instead, they're telling us that there are going to be a bunch of events and it turns out that there also might be a bunch of violence just everywhere. And when you see any of that stuff, understand that it's terrorism. And to prevent such terrorism, you're going to have to give us more power. Threat actors have recently mobilized to violence due to factors such as personal grievances, reactions to current events, and adherence to violent extremist ideologies, including racially or ethnically motivated or anti-government slash anti-authority violent extremism. And again, just inflating all of the definition of potential terrorist incidents. These recent violent acts don't seem to fit any normal definition of domestic terrorism in any way. Unless you want to talk about the Buffalo guy, he was a white supremacist, but he was also a left wing authoritarian, which is like the KKK, the root of terrorist ideologies. Terrorism is one of their tactics, and it always has been, by the way, the woman Susan Rosenberg, who is the executive director 
on what was the fiscal sponsor of Black Lives Matter, Thousand Currents, was part of the May 19th communist organization who carried out a bombing of the U.S. Capitol. Communist ideologies produce terrorism. That is one of their tactics. Foreign adversaries, including terrorist organizations and nation state adversaries, also remain intent on exploiting the threat environment to promote or inspire violence, sow discord, or undermine U.S. democratic institutions. DHS continues to assess that the primary threat of mass casualty violence in the United States stems from lone offenders and small groups motivated by a range of ideological beliefs and or personal grievances. So the nation is under a high threat environment, a high threat of terrorism because of lone offenders and small groups motivated by a range of ideological beliefs and personal grievances. Does that sound like what we generally think of terrorism? Of course not. But now they've expanded the definition of terrorism to include everything. So now they're able to target individuals for their ideologies. DHS works with partners across every level of government, in the private sector, and in local communities to keep Americans safe, including through the following resources and support. And there are some bullet points. DHS and the FBI continue to share timely and actionable information and intelligence with the broadest audience possible. This includes sharing information and intelligence with partners across every level of government and in the private sector. DHS conducts recurring threat briefings with private sector and state, local, tribal, territorial, and campus partners, including to inform security planning efforts. DHS remains committed to working with partners to identify and prevent all forms of terrorism and targeted violence and to support law enforcement efforts to keep communities safe. And I wonder if DHS would like to disclose a list of those private sector and campus partners that they are in consistent communication with, warning them about the potential threats of wrong speak and wrong think. DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, the FBI and the National Counterterrorism Center released updated behavioral indicators of U.S. extremist mobilization to violence. Further, INA's National Threat Evaluation and Reporting Program continues to provide tools and resources for federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial partners on preventing terrorism and targeted violence, including online suspicious activity reporting training. DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, works with government and private sector partners, including owners and operators of critical infrastructure, like our election machines, soft target facilities, and public gathering places to enhance security and mitigate risks posed by acts of terrorism and targeted violence through its network of protective security advisors and resources addressing active shooters, school safety, bombing prevention, and soft targets, crowded places. DHS's Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships educates and trains stakeholders on how to identify indicators of radicalization to violence, where to seek help, and the resources that are available to prevent targeted violence and terrorism. In 2021, CP3 awarded about $20 million in grants through its Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention Grant Program. And it's strange that that didn't do the job. 
They've been focused on this domestic terrorism problem for a long time, haven't they? Keeps growing. How does that happen? Well, it can happen indefinitely as long as they keep defining more things and more ideas as terrorism. In 2021, DHS designated for the first time domestic violent extremism as a national priority area within its Homeland Security grant program, resulting in at least $77 million being spent on preventing, preparing for, protecting against, and responding to related threats. And everybody should be thrilled that they used $77 million to pursue domestic terrorists defined so loosely that now it includes the global communist order's ideological opponents. In 2022, DHS's nonprofit security grant program provided over $250 million in funding to support target hardening and other physical security enhancements to nonprofit organizations at high risk of terrorist attack. Nonprofit organizations at high risk of terrorist attack. Well, that is very, very strange. I wonder what they're doing to support these nonprofit organizations. What are these nonprofit organizations? Are they NGOs? Are they NGOs involved in ballot harvesting and election manipulation? Are they preparing, for instance, for a list of those NGOs involved in the theft of American elections being talked about in negative ways online? And are they prepared to call that terrorism? It seems like that's what they might be working up to, especially with CISA watching over our critical machine-based election infrastructure. So far, their threat alert has basically defined everything they don't like as terrorism and then given themselves a pat on the back for spending half a billion dollars on this problem. DHS remains focused on disinformation that threatens the security of the American people, including disinformation spread by foreign states such as Russia, China and Iran or other adversaries such as transnational criminal organizations and human smuggling organizations. So you got that? You're not allowed to argue with the media when it comes to Russia, China or Iran. Schoolsafety.gov consolidates school safety related resources from across the government. Through this website, the K through 12 academic community can also connect with school safety officials and develop school safety plans. Well, hallelujah. Now, all of that should be taken as a direct threat to the American public by the illegitimate regime. They are trying to criminalize dissent, and it should be very, very clear that that's what they're trying to do. But, and this is always the important part to remember, these people are morons, okay? They are incompetent. They have released similar notices a bunch of times. They want to legitimize what they're doing by making it seem like a legitimate government priority. It's not one because the problem is something they're making up. The problem only exists as they define it. And their goal, of course, is, is to scare people from speaking out against them or from demonstrating peacefully against them. And we know what peaceful demonstration means to these people. Black Lives Matter Antifa, actual domestic terrorists committing actual ideological domestic terrorism for an entire summer 
is not a problem. That's peaceful protest. The terrorism is when anyone stands up to that. And that's clearly what they're laying the groundwork for. But again, these people are not the majority. This is an illusion that they have created through these sorts of manipulations. They are skewing public perception. And most importantly, they're skewing the public's perception of itself. So you simply need to back out from the central narrative, create some space, look at it for what it is. It is a propaganda effort. They are lying to you. They are presenting a false reality in hopes that you will go along with it. Because if you don't go along with it, their agenda comes crashing down around them. And that is exactly what we have seen this entire time. So yes, it's threatening. It's a little scary. It's a little uncomfortable. It's a little annoying. But everything they do falls flat. In the end, we win. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!